0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rock Album Analysts. This is one of your hosts, David Luccarelli. I'm here with your other host, John Carson, and our special guest, Andrew Carter. We're here to give an in-depth analysis of the Kiss album, Hotter Than Hell. Which is Kiss. The
1: second album came out at the end of 1974, right? Near the,
2: uh, what, July or August of 1974, I think?
1: Yeah. So right,
2: right, yeah. Right, uh, so basically, this was um, right around when President Nixon resigned. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Okay, that's a good thing yeah. to know about. Okay, totally
0: makes I, sense then. Now,
2: yeah. yeah, I don't know if these events were related, but um, you know, at least that's a little bit of historical context.
0: There you go. Okay. And the first album wasn't selling, so they took the boys off tour, and they said, "You got to go back into the studio with the exact same producers." Uh, Kenny Kerner and Richie Weiss, but the biggest difference was instead of recording in New York in Bell Studios They set up to record in Los Angeles and on day one Paul Stanley's guitar was stolen and it kind of went downhill from there
1: All right, okay So where does this stand in your guys's pantheon of kiss albums as like favorite next to You know is it one you go back to playing or not much
2: at all? Well for me, I mean it's it's top five Um it is of, of the earliest records. It's, um, I mean, it's arguably my favorite between this one. It's this one and the first one. Um, I just think it's, um, it, it gets a little bit overlooked, I think, per, perhaps because it's kind of just sort of a, um, a, a perhaps because of the production. Um, but it's, uh, for me, this, w- th- this is at the, uh, for me, towards the top of the KISS catalog.
1: Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Again, I'm also surprised at the number of, again, I, I hate to say this, my early kiss introduction comes from a live one and a live two. Um, I mean, I was, I was four years old essentially when this album came out. So I don't, you know, I wasn't there getting it or whatever, or purchasing it. So it's not an album that I don't, I don't think I've ever owned it. You know what I mean? By itself individually. So, um, but I'm surprised by the number of like actual hits on it that I like. Um, Which to me the standout is going blind, which is I don't know at all, never really heard before, uh, even though I am a Kiss fan, not never really heard it um, very much, and it's come out as the song I hum the most since I've listened to it. You know, since I played the album a few times over and over again, I find myself humming "Going Blind" more than any other song on the album. So.
0: It's a catchy tune, but before we get into the, the specific songs, I just want to say, Andrew sort of alluded to it, um, it's definitely the heaviest KISS album by the original lineup. Uh, it's, you know, they had been on tour, the, the playing's a lot more sophisticated, uh, it's a lot more riff-based, uh, I suspect because they probably found that the songs that they had that were like that were going over better live. Um, okay. But the other thing is that the sound quality is very murky. Uh, and they knew that as they were recording it, that they had an issue with the, the game structure in the console, they didn't have the time or the money to start over again and try recording, re-recording somewhere else. Uh, quite the contrast to what happened um, only four years later when Paul Stanley had a similar experience recording his solo album and he insisted on switching studios and the record company said do you know how much money that's going to cost us and his reply was how much is it going to cost you if i don't make the album so <laughs> right. so so dave um how did you how did you first uh,
2: tell us how you procured your first copy of hotter than hell or when you first started listening to it
0: right so my introduction to kiss um Was I was at first grade, and there was a kid at recess, and we were trying to determine what to play, and you know it was SWAT and cops and robbers and superheroes, and somebody said let's play Kiss. So you get to be a space guy, you get to be a demon, you know, et cetera. Um, And I went over to his house, and we listened to his older brother's copy of the first Kiss album. Um, and I think we heard the side two first, but then I said to my mom, I want a kiss album. She was always on the hunt for a bargain. So we were at the national record mart in uh, squirrel Hill and she saw a copy of the originals. And so she got me that, which had the first three albums on it. So that was really my introduction in one fell swoop. I got the first trilogy. Perfect. <laughs>
2: that's uh, that's that, that is um, a stroke of luck all the way across the board. Uh, do you still have that uh, copy?
1: I do not. <laughs> ah. Oh, you don't? I remember that sitting in your room, your whole childhood, man. That that three-fold record sleeve and everything. Yeah. I think I
0: still awesome. have the sleeve. I th- I still have some of the stuff that came with it. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's funny.
2: Okay. Wow. Uh, Andrew, how about you? How'd you get it? Well, I was lucky. I had um, I lived across the street from a kid with an older brother who had been a Kiss fan earlier in the 70s. But by the time he was late teens, he'd kind of gone off the band. So the the kid that lived across the street was about my age, um, helped himself to copies of Hotter Than Hell, Destroyer, Love Gun and the Gene Simmons solo record and brought them all across the street to, to my place. And we would listen to them there and then he just kinda of left them there. So by the time I was in third grade I had four KISS albums that I didn't pay for. Um wow, good and gym, man. yeah. And so it was one of them was hotter than hell. And what I uh, you know, going back and, and remembering this is that I played side one over and over and over again and I barely played side two at all. And I don't know why I did that, but um Side one of um, of Hotter Than Hell is something that is um, just burned into my, into uh, part of my childhood, so it's one that actually, um, you know, part of when when Dave was talking about these podcasts, it was part of why I wanted to get involved with this one, is because this one this one matters to me. So. Man, man. It's a good one.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I bet you it's burned in your uh, mind from uh, hearing it so many times. All right, so do we want to go song by
0: song? or? Yeah, let's do that. So, okay, the album kicks off with Got to Choose.
1: Right, which is uh, what a, I heard that Paul Stanley based this on another song, a 99.5% country-western song by Chet Atkins, I believe, uh, about someone who needed a woman to believe in him more than 99 and percent. So he wrote this song about uh, someone choosing to leave him or not, or to stay with him. Um, at least from what I, re- you know, what I got from Paul Stanley's uh, reading his autobiography on it. So what do you guys think of the song?
0: Well, right away, I think it's obvious that this is a band that's now been playing with each other and on tour and the writing, the playing is a whole lot more sophisticated. This is probably one of the few Kiss songs that actually has a, a groove to it, right? That, and you can hear mm-hmm. the the whole Motown influence. And uh, what do you think, Andrew?
2: Yeah, I think so. It's um, this is it's it's definitely one of my favorite songs from their early era. Um, I think it's uh, um, you know it was one of the the you know it was. This or Parasite were the only two tunes that were ever going to be the first track on this album. And so I think ultimately they went with Got to Choose, but I think it's um, it's an excellent reflection of what was really, really good about the band early.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. I mean, I like the, the opening riff is my favorite part about it, actually. The you know, the, the chugga-chugga kind of sound or whatever. Um, and they all kind of blend really well together. And again, I like the woo-hoo-hoo's, you know... And- <laughs> That's that's usually my favorite part is when they all sing together. So,
0: yeah, I like it. Okay, this is going to sound crazy. I think this song influenced King Crimson elephant talk.
1: Uh, Okay, I don't know. Do you think anybody in King Crimson's ever listened? I'm sure that actually they probably have listened to Kiss albums. I
0: don't know. All right, yeah, sure. Is there there anyone
2: in King Crimson who cops to being a Kiss fan?
0: Uh, Fripp's been interviewed and, and mentioned Kiss. He's definitely aware of them. Okay. Oh, really? Huh.
2: All right. Okay. Oh, uh, that's sure. I'll take it.
0: So, All right. Uh, yeah.
2: It, it, I, I, that's actually one. I'm not. I can't say one way or the other on that one, but um, I think that if there if there was an influence, I think you got to look for the King Crimson band member who was either running in those circles or has copped to being a fan, because they're I mean, that's still. They're, I mean, King Crimson's also a rock band, but they're, um, uh, you know, a different slice of the rock and roll pizza
0: as it were. Absolutely. All right. So moving on to song number two, Parasite.
1: Yeah, the greatest riff in rock and roll ever. No. OK, but get very close to it. I love that. I love the opening riff. I remember seeing um, I remember going to see Anthrax and having uh, this this. Um, I was 20 at the time seeing Anthrax playing with the um, the 40-something uh, dude who was the um, guy who ran the radio station who had gotten us the tickets to see Anthrax or whatever and saying, oh, this is my favorite Kiss song, even though he had come. It was the Anthrax uh, Public Enemy uh, tour that, that happened in the 90s or whatever. And him talking the whole way down about how he couldn't wait to see public enemy but then in fact actually the moment that he really exploded was seeing uh anthrax perform uh do their cover of parasite so um and it, it is it's it's one of the my favorite songs ever and i think a lot of people really like it
0: yeah i think it's ace freely at his songwriting best it's i mean it's in some ways it's a simple kind of chromatic ascending riff but at the same time um it 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 really sounds timeless. It's one of those songs that doesn't sound dated at all. Uh, Mm. And it's so powerful, so heavy. And for all those people too, that say Kiss's music is, is so simplistic. It's a riff that's really difficult to play precisely correctly. Um, Yeah. It's a, it's a weird timing. That's, that's what makes it great.
1: It's the, I can't even hum it properly, but yeah, exactly. That's what makes it great. It's the, um, the timing on the notes that are on that you know scale going up sorry go ahead didn't interrupt
0: interrupt but even even to the point where um when bruce Kulick came into the band and the band would play parasite they wouldn't play it completely correct like the way that bruce played it was not completely authentic and uh you know dave mustaine has said that he learned his very first uh idea of heavy metal phrasing from listening to this album i have to think that this is one of those songs that that he was speaking of specifically
1: yeah um i also wrote down here on my notes that actually it's the first the drums are a lot um more in front in hotter than hell partic- i noticed that particularly with parasite there's they are a lot more um well, for lack of a better word, in front. It's it sounds a lot better mixed. It doesn't sound as murky as the first uh, album, but I don't know. Do you guys agree with that, or do you think it's still like pretty poor production? Because that's to the whole album. I, the drums sound a lot better um, than the first
2: album. Yeah, I guess I don't know. Uh, part of it is, I mean, I know you, you've had everyone from band members to uh, you know to, to everyone, you know, lots of other folks have kind of have, have sort of criticized the production of this album, but I guess probably um, I feel like the album is what it is and, and it sounds like how it sounds like. And I tend not to maybe on, you know, from the standpoint of, is, is it sonically perfect? Probably not, but is it kind of perfectly imperfect for what Kiss was doing at that moment? I think it kind of does work. Um, I think it's just the, 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 the murkier sound actually really, really, I think plays, To certain songs' advantages, and I think possibly none more so than uh, the the two uh, Ace Soul Ace Frehley compositions on this record. This being one of them, Um, I think part of um, um, I I think it says something too that "Parasite" was given um, the second song on side one. uh, that, that was moved up because if you go back and you look at the songwriting credits on the first record, there was only one Ace song there, and that was Cold Gin, and it was a classic, but they put it in the middle of the record. Whereas mm-hmm. um, this was, um, they gave this one just a, a, as the one-two punch to open the record along with um, with Got to Choose. And I, I think at this point, um correct me if I'm wrong, at this point they were already trying to get Ace to sing it, but he wasn't interested at this point, And that's why you ended up with, uh, Gene singing the vocals on this one. Is that correct?
1: I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but... I saw, I saw something on YouTube about him saying he wasn't uh, specifically about this, um, album. And the one thing he said is he still wasn't sure about his singing voice. So they made Peter sing, I think a later song mainliner. Um, and strange then ways, yeah. strange ways. Yeah, that's it. He wrote that. And then also, um, during the recording of one of their songs, Joe Cocker was blasted out of his mind and sleeping back in the control room. Those are the only two facts I got from that YouTube video on it.
0: Ah. But yeah,
1: <laughs> that he still didn't want to uh, record. He still didn't trust his singing voice. So he wouldn't do it.
0: I will say this about the production of the album. It's a lot closer to how the band was sounding live at the time than the first album, right? The first album is, yeah. is very much cleaned up and you know they're not uh, playing with the same amount of energy uh, that they were playing with live. This is a much better representation of where the band was at. I just think that you know it's difficult. The 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 bass and the guitars tend to bleed together a lot from a production point of view. So I think that's where you know people hear that murkiness.
1: I don't really have a problem with the production on this. Maybe because I've been listening to so much crap my whole life, or something like that. But I mean, a lot of times, perfect production to me sounds a little bit cheese ball. You know what I mean? Like I actually kind of, it seems very raw to me and I don't really mind that about this, but I don't know. That's just me. Like there's nothing. Yeah. I don't know. There's nothing in this album that makes me say like this sucks. You know what I mean? But I don't know. Maybe we've reached the point where I've heard so many demo tapes from
2: so many bands that, you know, this sounds like classical music at this point. I don't know. So (laughs) sorry. Well, well also another, um, another hype or another strong point of parasite that I think we would be um it would be terrible if we did not actually discuss this is aces solo which remains one of my favorites um oh I yeah 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 uh... I, love way, I love the way it crashes in um <laughs> yeah i love the way that you know it is a classic signature ace fraley solo where you know from a technical level um you know it is not anything that uh, you know it's it's you know this was not a guy who, uh, to quote Martin Popoff, you know, Kiss were not guys that wore their fingers down to bloody stumps at the Berkeley Academy of Music. Um, right. <laughs> but when you when you hear Ace play, you know it's him right away. And there's a lot of Berkeley graduates that you probably couldn't say that about. And yeah, it yeah, is just. I, I think this is one of the earliest examples of him being. You, know, you could hear this this as an isolated track. You take everything away, and you'd know in a New York second that it was Ace Frehley. Yeah, and,
1: good point. Good and point, and yeah. I think
2: it's just, um, it, 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 um, I mean, as much as Cold Gin was his standout on the first record, there's an argument that this was really Ace Frehley's kind of coming out as a songwriter and as a, uh, a lead guitar player on this
0: song. Well, he's definitely playing in top form. And I think you hit upon an interesting point, which is, yes, there are lots of technically superior guitar players, but the ones that we tend to remember are the ones that can play a couple notes and you can identify them. And there's very few that fall into that category. But what the, what it is, is they're stylists, you know? Um, and when you hear Brian May play two notes, you know, it's Brian May. Same with Ace Frehley. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I agree. I, yeah. He's, he's, he's an art, he's an archetype of guitar players people have imitated him but i don't think a lot of he's imitated a lot of other people so
2: yeah Uh, and i think and and also you know another reason why he remained so influential is that a lot of kids when they picked up guitar and started to learn to play um you know it got to the point where you know if you could play bar chords you could play a lot of the first side of kiss alive you know alive you know minus the solos so um you know it was you couldn't necessarily play the solos exactly like ace but as somebody, when somebody was learning how to play guitar and working through that, um, these were attainable goals. It wasn't like picking up, like trying to pick, you know, um, somebody who started trying to figure out Stained Class by Judas Priest was probably going to get very frustrated. But with Kiss, with, with Kiss stuff, a lot of the songs are written from a more straightforward standpoint. So it became a, um, a, a brass ring or like a, a bar that that a novice player could reach for and attain in a few months, uh, if not sooner, with a lot of
0: practice. And unfortunately, yeah. that's kind of a double-edged sword because those kids like could figure out, hey, I can kind of almost play the riff to Parasite, KISS must suck, right? Because they they never <laughs> stopped to think beyond like well could I have written the riff to Parasite could I have written the rest of the song could I have arranged it could I have written the vocal melodies and the lyrics could I sing and play them at the same time could I play it live on stage in a way that entertains thousands of people you know somehow it never it never got to that point it's the but it's your ability to take something
1: so simple and make it that exciting that's why they're great and that's that, that, you know what I mean that's that's what made Kiss Kiss is yeah I can play all their stuff you know what I mean and you can play all their stuff and I can teach you know my my 13 year old son to play their stuff but it's, it's still the ability did you think of it first and it's so simple yet so perfect they get exactly what the message you know they want to get across that easily without but at the same time throwing in little flourishes and things like that that make it obviously art, you know, the, 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 the way that Ace plays, or the fact that Gene Simmons doesn't just hump an eighth note, you know what I mean, and will actually play walking bass lines, which was crazy for, you know, metal at this point, and that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's the ability to do something simple and do it really well, and then, you know, make it transcend that genre, so.
0: And speak, yeah. speaking as somebody who's played in a band that covered this song, it's a song that works, that like live, it's undeniable. If you're doing it mm-hmm. justice, the song slays. Right, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, you can't you can't beat it. It's 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 really what? It's like two or three chords, you know. I mean, it's the the riff and then it's yeah, never mind. It's great. Okay. Moving on, moving on. We've admitted Parasite's one of the greatest songs ever. Okay. The one wow. blind. <laughs> right. All right. So again, this is my favorite song on the album, even though I don't think I've ever heard it until I actually sat down and listened to this album. Uh, I love the way the chords start out with the, you know, it goes to the minor, I think, on the third or fourth chord and the that sort of riff or that change around that they do. Um, and it's the one I keep humming. And the way that Gene Simmons is, sings it is perfectly creepy. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, like I said, I mean, and I was thinking, how many songs have you ever heard that are, you know, about going blind? you know, snowblind. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. And yet this one actually stands out to me. Cuz I expected to kind of ignore it. Cuz I was like, "Go on,
2: blind. Come on. I'm going to hate this song." But actually, it's turned into one of my favorites. Andrew? Yeah, it is um I mean, it's from a songwriting standpoint, it's definitely one of their most unique ones. It was to the best of my knowledge, it was rarely if ever performed live in the early days because it just doesn't jibe with what their early stage act was and i think maybe it you know it turned up it's turned up later in, in some of the acoustic shows but um i'm not aware of this ever really being an active part of a live repertoire but they um the band is aware and i think that, that this has actually been recognized by even you know hardcore kiss Chris, Chris critics as an actually very good song uh the lyrics are absolutely weird i mean The fact that he makes the protagonist 93 and not 23 is the one thing that kind of helps reduce the 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 creep factor at least by a little bit. But um, it's just it is such um, you know it's it's a really really I mean it's an outlier in the Kiss catalog, and I think at least part of the reason for that is that it's a song that predates Kiss. Uh, It was. Wicked Lester song that was written between uh, with um, Gene Simmons and Steve Coronel, who was a member of Wicked Lester, who um, Gene ha- ended up having to cut him loose and he didn't make it to Kiss, but this song survived. And so part of why it is like, it sounds so, it's not out of place, but so different is that it's from a different era. This was not written as a Kiss song. It had been written as a Wicked Lester song. And oh, okay. that, yeah. that that's part of, I think, what makes it such, um, what makes it sound so different, but I think they've, it works in the context of this record. And I think it definitely serves as a really good change of pace from, um, the, you know, the, 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 um, got to choose and parasite, which are just, you know, two like bam, bam, that's a nice combination right there. And then this sort of slows it down for a bit. And I think it's, it, it works very well in this slot.
0: Yeah it's, yeah, it's a dirge almost. It's almost, it's kind of a ballad. Uh, Gene has said that musically he was influenced by mountain scenes from an imaginary Western. Um, it, it, this song to me um, is also sort of the vestige of the Gene Simmons that was making his own science fiction fanzines and things like that. Um, the original lyric um, was uh, Little Lady from the Land Beneath the Sea, right? Um, Mm -hmm. and then they changed it, uh, to you're 16. I'm 93. Um, supposedly they just talked about this in an interview. Um, that was a suggestion that Paul threw out as a joke and Gene ended up doing it and they thought it was cool at the time, although there wasn't a whole lot of thought put into it. The only reason that I have to doubt that story is that Steve Cornell was, just released from jail for possession of um and making child pornography uh so
1: that makes
2: it a much better song all right okay that's no wow it it,
0: doesn't it
2: does does increase the creep factor but the thing about it is what we don't know is was this a simmons lyric or was it a Cornell lyric because he's got a co-writing credit but what we don't know is did they collaborate
0: on lyrics or was it music well the current the current kiss line is that it was a Paul Stanley lyric that he yeah, threw out in I the heard. studio when Gene was recording the song. So I have
1: that that yeah that's in Paul Stanley's autobiography or biography or whatever. Okay. But, yeah. Take that what you will. Yeah, but now that makes it totally bizarro. but sorry go ahead, yeah, yeah.
0: It is interesting a lot of these songs on this album that were kind of overlooked at the time because they weren't on a live one found uh, new life and appreciation on kiss unplugged and this was definitely one of those so moving on to the title track hotter than hell
2: yeah I like is, it yeah it's it's um, another signature early song um, you know I think it's uh I mean normally you you know if it's gonna be the title track of an album um, that generally gives you a pretty good indication that the band also felt it was one of their stronger tracks. And it's, um, I think it's, um, I mean, it's a catchy tune. I think got to choose is a better song, but got to choose is not a better album title.
1: Yeah. Great. I don't, I, I like it. I don't love it. Um, I, a couple of things in my notes here is that I like Jean's bass fills in it. There's a lot of bass fills in it. And then there seems to be during the guitar solo, there seems to be two sort of solos running against each other. And I couldn't tell if that was a product. I mean, it worked, but I couldn't tell if it was a production issue or what, um, because there was literally a moment where I was like, that sounds off. Um, you know what I mean? That it wasn't mixed right. And I couldn't tell, you know, I don't know if I'm listening to the remastered iTunes version of it or whatever, but um, no, there's, there's me- definitely
0: a couple of, uh, I mean, dueling guitar solos on the outro. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it sounds
1: fine. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And I liked that a lot. I thought it was cool,
0: um, but I didn't. Sorry. god Yeah i was just gonna say you know it's it's a sophisticated song musically it's it's uh paul's ripped off the chords from freeze all right now the chord progression yeah but, yeah yeah uh-huh, okay but yeah, within sorry. that yeah, he's not, he's
2: copped to that yeah
0: um yeah. but within that it's actually it's very musically sophisticated i don't know which came first i think this song came first but in some ways it's a very similar song to um heavy metal by sammy hagar yeah, that's what I was thinking. The same thing. The do This
2: this predates it. I think. Yeah. Heavy metal was about six years later after this.
0: Okay. Um, there's an interesting point in the main riff where the guitar players go to two separate chords, and mm-hmm. it, it's, it creates a little bit of a dissonance. I think they go to one guy's playing a G, one guy's playing a D, and. Uh huh. Um, Obviously, they liked how it sounded. It's kind of an extended, almost jazzy thing, and they kept it in there. But I, I'm willing to bet this is the only instance of that chord appearing on any Kiss album.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll buy that. Yeah,
0: probably. Um, yeah. <laughs> um outro very Black Sabbath. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and the riff is great, but
1: it's
2: not. It doesn't slay me, you know. Like I expected it to.
0: Okay. Yeah. I think,
2: um, I think, yeah, at times, sometimes I feel like the, uh, the verse can be a little like plotting's too, too negative of a term, but I think I definitely enjoy the, you know, the, the chorus and the outro, um, more of the song, but as it is, you know, this isn't, you know, if I, if I'm seeing a kiss concert now and they start playing the song, I am not going to be disappointed. Um, I, I, think, um, I, I think it's, uh, like I said, it's not like, I think you know, I, I don't like it as much as got to choose, but it's still not, this is by no means a song that I dislike in any way. So.
0: Yeah. Uh. Now, by the time they were playing this on the revenge tour, Paul was having a little fun with the lyrics. He uh changed one of the lines to, she's got to sit on my face. right? Um, <laughs> Losing <laughs> the
1: innocence of the song. Now, okay. <laughs> That's... Oh boy. Okay.
2: The... Yeah. yeah well, well, I guess I'll, We'll get into the lyrical analysis a little later, but yeah.
1: <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, was this the, I, this was the single from the album, right? It was, yes. Yeah, oh. okay, so this follows the whole four, fourth song roll. Have you guys heard this? The third or fourth song on any album is usually the one that's released as a single. I don't
2: know if they actually do that anymore, but
1: that was something I'd always heard. Interesting. Um,
2: yeah, Yeah, it, it usually was. You had the first couple of tracks that were normally geared towards the album crowd and then you would you would generally have the single year the third or fourth yeah that's usually because that was um you know this was when you actually had re- you know djs playing records and they wanted something that was on side one um right and so mm-hmm. and and something that was you know three minutes three thirty max so yeah there's there's absolutely a grain of truth to that uh from this era yeah okay all right cool all right, let
1: me go rock and roll, which I feel is completely kind of generic. But my sister-in-law maintains it's her favorite Kiss song. Um, but I don't really like it. I, I find it kind of uh, hard to listen to, actually. It I seems... Said...
0: Yeah, I don't know. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, it's interesting, right? Because a lot of people think the song is a cover because it's so much steeped in the old Chuck Berryisms of kind of old-fashioned songwriting. and right. And yet it's not. Um, It's a song that I think really shines best when they play it in an extended way live. You know, on a live one, uh, they're playing it on the End of the Road tour right now. And Mm -hmm. it's one of the few KISS songs that I think you can hear spraying out of them doing an extended jam. I mean, they weren't really a jam band, but, you know, by the time they're getting into that, you know, that groove of down, you know, that, that, that only comes out of a band jamming on that riff. Yeah. yeah okay. I, I think
2: with this one, yeah. What, what you're, the version of let me go rock and roll that appears on hotter than hell is pretty much the, um, you know, the embryo that the song later grew out of. I mean, this is essentially what you're hearing here is about half of the song as it was, as it grew into, because, um, the actual live version of the song runs between five and six minutes. And this one runs just over two, I think. Um, So you essentially don't have the part of the song that makes it a classic. You have the verses and and the choruses, but what you don't have is the ending jam where, you know, that that gives Ace a chance to solo and it gives the band a chance to play some power chords and do a little bit of synchronized Motown moves and so on and so forth. And and so (laughs) I think to a certain extent, I can understand why, um they would just get overlooked here because it was almost like they i like you know they had to come up with another song for the record and they knocked this out and i think that i i i really get the impression that and i I think dave is right i think that this song was written from just a studio jam and they had a couple of riffs that they could they could put together uh and i think part of the the clue the giveaway clue here is that if you look at the songwriting credits It is a Simmons and Stanley co-write, which is really unusual for them, because normally they they would write separately. So I'm thinking that chances are um, it was uh, Paul that came up with the guitar riffs, and I think that I remember seeing an interview with Gene, and somebody asked him about the lyrics for this song, which are relatively kind of straightforward, and sometimes they don't, you know, maybe don't make 100% sense. And I think Gene kind of dodged the question and answered it at the same time by saying, well... Sometimes you just have to write lyrics that just don't get in the way of the song. Yeah.
0: And, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. They, they, the lyrics so I get, sound like I, filler that Gene was just throwing in there to have something, <laughs> you know, because Baby's Got the Feeling, Baby Wants to Show, Baby Won't You Tell Me, Baby Rock and Roll, yeah. Um, yeah. Sounds like something that he was originally planning to go back in and fix, and that was right. just, yeah, just a exactly. placeholder. And yet it's uh, kind of brilliant in its like nonsensical simplicity. Yeah. I think this
2: is, I, I, I really think that this song was, you know, maybe they had the riffs sitting around or whatever, but I think they were running out of time on the record. Um, and they needed to do something and they had, you know, um, you know, they, they had enough that they could have a song that ran over two minutes, which I think is what you had to have at that point. And let's, um, we need lyrics by noon tomorrow. Um, somebody start writing and, uh, this is what they came up with. And I think that was um, if they um, I think if they had had the extended jam that later came around, I think that would have been on the record. Um, so I think this was kind of a, almost a situation where um, <clears throat> like, you know, Black Sabbath's uh, signature song Paranoid was written under very similar circumstances. They were originally uh, Paranoid was supposed to be seven songs. And then all of a sudden, Tony Iomi played the riff. Everyone else started vamping with it. And Ozzy started scribbling lyrics. And 40 minutes later, they had Paranoid. And it ended up being the title track of that record, as well as their signature song. And I think that this is almost, uh, I, I, I get the impression that this was a very, very similar situation here. Although what happened here is you ended up having the front half of what became a live showpiece for them, uh, that Born Out of Studio Jams.
0: Yep. All right,
1: I'll buy that cuz I I no, I, I skip over it every time I listen to the album. I really do not like the song.
0: Okay.
1: But that's just me. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, Moving on, uh we got all, right. all The Way, which has a very wonky kind of cool opening riff, but not again, feels a little bit like filler to me, but maybe you guys can expound a little bit better on it. Um, cuz I I I I'm, I can't even remember it now that I'm I'm talking about it. I'm trying to I just remember liking the riff as being sort of goofy you know what i mean and, and kind of cool
0: but yeah it's got that cowbell thing happening right yeah
1: yeah exactly yeah um but other than that i don't really really remember the song actually even though i listened to the album like three times so go ahead what do you guys know about it i mean anything cool
2: Is, there's a reason i should like it maybe andrew <laughs> well i mean um i don't know it's 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 definitely i mean I, th- I think that you know if you have to rank the songs on hotter than hell it's you know it's i mean for starters it's one of the ones that didn't make it on to um onto on a live and, I, and again i don't know how often this one made it into the live set um, i'm not <laughs> sure that it was a staple i think this was one um but having said that i think the band must have had high hopes for the song because it starts side two and that's um you know that's an um, that is a really really important consideration, and just for anyone who is um, not of a certain age here, keep in mind that when bands were or when artists were recording LPs back in you know up until late 80s when all of a sudden you know cds became the main delivery format you had basically about 20 to you know 19 to 23 minutes of music per side of a record and so you had a major creative decision to make in terms of sequencing your record um you know what are you going to put on side one and what are you going to put on side two and normally side two is reserved for one of the album's heavy hitters and so all the way i think that they must have um I, I get the impression that, that that Gene may have thought that this was. Uh, I think Gene probably thought this was his best song of these bunch of of this bunch, um, because he leads with this one. And I think it's probably um, when you take a look at this. I think it's probably just you know you, you see this the, the Simmons and Stanley power dynamic here because you've got Paul with the first song on side A, and Gene with the first song on side B, um, and so I and so. As it turned out, I think you know, watching you ended up becoming the song that was a lot more popular out of these two back-to-back Simmons songs. But I yeah. think it was, there 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 is a catchier element all the way, and I think that maybe they were thinking from the standpoint of this is this is the song that is more likely to get on the radio. Um I think that that it, you know it is there is it's a catchier, poppier song. Um, but I think watching you, like, like I'm, I'm kind of segueing into the next song here, watching you was kind of like the darker, murkier, slightly scarier or creepier song, but that ended up being the better kiss song as opposed yeah, that's to the creep, better, better, better song. That's pop song. And so I, but I get the impression that, that all the way got the nod as the second song as the, as lead off of side B, because they thought that this would be something that could really sell some records and get some radio play
1: like it's more universal than watching you maybe is that what correct you're saying? Like, yes and it feels like yes. i mean it feels like straight up filler and now you got now my brain is spinning with like what are songs that kick off side twos on other albums and i can think of all i can think of is when the levy breaks by
2: on zeppelin four ah
1: man this is a whole other podcast
2: no no no, no. no yeah. Songs yeah. Whole, like levy nothing. breaks levy breaks is the album closer misty mountain hop was the first song on side two. Oh, that's right that's right because, and then I'm thinking Blue to cold albums there's that uh, this
1: is the pact on fire of and origin oh man dude I could go on for days about this so really you'd think that okay so the first song on the second side is usually something that's supposed to
2: sell like that's
1: supposed to be the song because or it's
2: not it's or it's not necessarily supposed to be a um, you know a radio song but what 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 it what I think a better way to put it is that this is a song that the band feels is one of the strongest tracks on this record.
1: Oh, okay. All right. All right. Cause I mean, to me watching you is much more cause see, side two to me is usually when you start to lose it for a band or at least to the, the album or whatever and watching you and coming home in strange ways are all great songs, but I'm saying all the way in mainline, just, to, you know, you could throw that out and just have a second side of those three songs. But, um, because watching you is a great song. I mean, it's it's lyrically interesting. It's got that killer riff. It's got all that stuff going on. Whereas all the way to me sounds just kind of a little whatever. But well, before huh, we, before we
0: completely write off all the way, I'll just say, I think it's in some ways Gene's criticism of middle class uh, bourgeoisie American life, right? Some... Whoa! Okay, <laughs> all right.
2: I, I'm listening. Oh, all right, okay, yeah. okay. Um, yeah,
0: actually, I I
2: figured we'd make a pass back through and talk about lyrics, but I, um, but uh, yeah, uh, I think it's yeah. Like I said, I think it was um, I, the more the now the more that I that I, that I you know, now that we're talking about this, I do think that this was. Um, I think John hit on the right term. I think that the band and Gene probably viewed this as a more universal song, and therefore it was more likely to get people that had not been into the band before to get them into it. And so, I mean, it's not, it's by no means, I I do not consider this to be a bad song. Um, I think it's well crafted and they've made an effort to make it catchy and so on and so forth. But in terms of, um, um, you know, I wouldn't go as far as using like the, the, the music from the Elder comparison that Gene always likes to make as he's like, well, it's a good album, but it's not a good Kiss album. I think this is a good, you know, this is a catchy 70s rock song, but what it is not is a signature Kiss song.
0: Granted. Yes. Okay. In, some yes. ways, in some ways, it's kind of Gene's answer to the lyrics of Parasite, though, right? I mean, Parasite is about a relationship gone sour that he's trying to extricate himself from, but this is about a relationship gone sour that's clearly between you know, it, two people that are living together if not actually married. Come right to your mother and father. One of these days you'll push me all the way. Uh, but, you know, there's there's an inherent implied criticism of uh, the vapidity of middle class American life. You're wearing clothes that fit you well. You're not hard to sell. I'll tell you what you want to hear for the day. If you think you need advice, come to me. Don't compromise. Baby, you've been hypnotized every day. You know, so there's that the idea that these people are living an inauthentic, miserable existence together in this weird, codependent relationship, and they're driving each other crazy—you um, know—maybe not a classic kiss song, but certainly an interesting place that Gene yeah. doesn't go very often. Right? No, that's that's interesting because actually
1: the song was so—I mean, I yeah. Now I'm going to go back and listen to it. All right. Okay. All right. I'll give it another shot. So, all right. M- so- moving on. <laughs> right yeah The watching you which we've already kind of discussed um discussed it's monster I, I, riff. I, yeah super monster riff it's nice and evil you know it's got a nice like sort of you know devil's music vibe to it the drums sound great in it um and it, yeah just it's all around a great song even the scratchy you know the sort of way that their voices are um scratchy as they're singing you know what i mean not particularly very harmonic um in places almost like they're screaming in
2: places yeah i think this is um the, 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 another thing that that i think um you can uh that i think with watching you i think this is one of one of the first if not the first songs that gene was writing from the demon persona because mm-hmm. yeah, his, yeah, songs, yeah. his songs on the first record a lot of them were as Kiss was still a work in progress or some of them were holdovers from Wicked Lester or whatever. And, but now, you know, they were, um, you know, a working touring band and he had been, you know, out, you know, like, you know, the the demon persona was uh, pretty much not fully formed at this point, but most of the way there. And so I think that watching you is arguably the first Simmons song really, really, to, to, to nail that persona, both lyrically and musically. And that's really, and that's really why, I think that's why this song really works. And I think that maybe, um, um, I think part of it is I, I, maybe they, they realized that and maybe they didn't because I think like, you know, we're, we're, we're Monday morning quarterbacking this year saying like, Oh yeah, watching you should have been the first song on side B, but at the same time, I'm not sure even, you know, we can say that with hindsight being 2020, but, I'm not sure that even the band knew that subconsciously what, what was actually happening here.
1: Yeah. I could see them not even trusting in it because it is a pretty riff based song. You know what I mean? So maybe they don't think it's because there really wasn't at this time, like super killer riff driven songs like this, you know, this was sort this is almost sort of like a godfather to heavy metal that comes, you know, five, 10 years later in terms of the idea of like a, you know, riff based kind of thing. So I could see them not trusting that to be, you know, like a, a solid song. All the other ones seem to be sort of, uh,
0: you know, sort of standard rock songs. So yeah, I see what you're saying. All right. I'll buy that. And in, it was a song. It was one of the original songs they demoed with Eddie Kramer and electric lady studios. Um, uh, okay. it was, Gene said he stole a, a passing guitar lick from mountains, Mississippi queen. So he was obviously listening to a lot of mountain when they were making this record um you know it's a song it's a song about voyeurism really and yeah yeah but from the perspective of a performing band you know voyeurism is i mean there's a nice turnaround because i'm watching you but everybody else is watching us you know nowhere is that more true than in the live concert experience
1: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah exactly uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's creepy, but at the same time, it's a comment on
1: themselves. You know what I mean? That we're all, we're watching you because we know all about you because you like our band and now you're watching us, yeah.
2: I, yeah. I see. And, then, and then the lyrics finish with watching us, so it makes it less, you know, th- this doesn't have lyrics of like, I've crept outside your house and I'm looking in your window. Um, you know, this is not, like, I've always read these lyrics as the dynamic uh, between a performer and somebody he's interested in eyeballing each other from the stage, and the venue small enough where they can do that.
0: Right. Is uh, it yeah, about okay. voyeurism or eye contact? You decide. Yes. <laughs> I um, like voyeurism. The, the riff yeah.
1: says voyeurism, man. The riff says yeah. voyeurism. Well, that
0: opening line, you know, I'm looking at the lyrics online right now. They have it as living as you do. I believe it is limping as you do, which makes it a little bit creepier. Oh. Yes,
2: that makes it awesome. That's great. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So, so she had a knee injury.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: right. Or they have an even stranger fetish. All right, so.
0: <laughs> Moving on uh, to mainline. Sex as a drug. Please give me some. I
1: didn't like, I don't like this song. I don't like it at all. I'm sorry, Sam, I am, but. <laughs> it's um i'm sorry go ahead sex well that's a lyric in it because i don't even think no i I think that's
0: uh, what it's about you know i mean Uh, mainline being a drug metaphor but he's Uh, using it as a come on baby won't you get with me kind of proposition right
1: yeah see i took it as a song about riding trains so (laughs) i don't know man i'm man i yeah
2: i'm sorry maybe you guys can expound better on it but yeah i think this this one like i i was always surprised like um when I heard this song, uh, you know, um, I actually thought for a while that this was actually a song that Peter Chris had written. Uh, I didn't realize it was a Paul Stanley song, um, but it's uh, because it really has that sort of R&B feel to it. Um, and you know, that was you know, as, as you know, as hindsight proved later on, you know, with the Peter Solo route album and his song, you know post Kiss output this was the sort of song that, that, that Peter was really, really into. And, um, you know, he does a nice job with the vocals on this, but, um, it just, I think this is one where it's again, one of the, um, this for me is the the real outlier on side two, kind of like where going blind is on side one. And I think it was, um, I think, you know, it's, it's a good, you know, it's, 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 you know, perfectly serviceable, decent song, but I don't think of it as a great kiss song.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. All right. Moving on. Yeah. I'm not giving it much more time either. Uh, okay. Coming well, home. Well, KISS played it once sorry.
0: live on tour. Oh, they did? Okay. Sorry. On that tour. That. And then they dropped it. So it must've gone over like lead balloon. Um, right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, okay. So what's, what's next? We got coming home. Which I like a lot, but again, maybe not a great KISS song, but um,
1: you know, uh, there's a great line in it about it's been a month of June since I've seen you, which is great. I think you um, misheard
0: that, but okay. <laughs> no, really? Oh, come on, really? I think it's been a month or two since I've seen a- oh, you. Man. Oh man, I
1: ruined it. Okay, all right. Well, I wrote a better version of the song, then, as so um, often I, happens. <laughs> right. <laughs> I like the, uh, I like the uh, the big open chords. You know what I mean? But
2: again, it doesn't sound like a
1: typical Kiss song, but I, I don't mind it. I like it.
2: You know. I- I'm a big fan of this song. Um, I think that, that, um, this is a song that again, kind of like, um, let me go rock and roll. This song was just banged out. was so quickly that I don't think that it's, um, to a certain extent, I think that this was a song that really, really, um, kind of spread its wings and came out in an acoustic version on on unplugged. And I think that and also, part of what also sets this song apart too is let's go back to songwriting again. This is another very, very unusual co-write within Kiss. You have yep. Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, and so I'm pretty no.
0: convinced. Paul Stanley and Ace Frehley. Sorry, sorry, Paul Stanley and Ace
2: Freely. Sorry, um, I am convinced that it was Ace that wrote the music and Paul that wrote the lyrics. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, I'll, I'll buy that. Back. And I'm pretty sure, because I think this is actually, and you know, we'll, we'll pass back through the lyrics. I'll, I'll just say, like give a. Maybe just a quick thing here but I think that this is actually um, lyrically this is one of the better songs on the record and it's this really really um, upbeat song I mean maybe I have it backwards and it was Ace that wrote the lyrics and Paul that did the music but at any rate it's an unusual blend and it's an unusual song and because it's so upbeat it almost doesn't really jive with Kiss's vibe at the time um, and I think that that because uh, and I think that's part of why maybe it didn't stick around in the live set is that it's actually it's a great song in a different setting, and I think one, part of the reason why it works so well in an acoustic setting is that it's not like you know four guys in superhero costumes, um, you know, playing at 100 decibels. You know, um, whereas I think this is um, this is definitely one of one of the more unique blends of of of, of creativity on this record, but it just in terms of um, how it best expressed itself probably not within like the early kiss live presentation. I think it was kind of just outside the realm of that and the way that, um, watching you encapsulate like, like in contrast the way that, that watching you encapsulates the early kiss vibe perfectly.
0: Yeah. I think it's the, probably the first song they ever wrote about being on the road too. Yeah. Which is,
1: that's usually the end yeah. times for a band, man. I'm t- <laughs> I mean, like, as soon as you start writing about being on the
2: road, but um, well, yeah, turn the page just destroyed Bob Seger's career. Right? Well,
1: no, no, it's no. I agree. I see what you're saying. It's just right. funny. Like there's so many bands always seem to sort of lose it once they start writing road. Like, yeah, I don't. No, that's not it. They um because I just discovered that Roundabout by Yes is actually a road song. It's about yes, them it coming home. And, yeah, it is. Um, uh, and so you got all these songs about, you know, this is what rock bands play and, uh, you know, radar love and, you know, all these songs. And, uh, this is their into that, that canon of road songs, you know what I mean? So,
0: well, it's not, it's not yet about them just having a girl in every port, right? It's about them trying to maintain a, a long-term relationship with the girl back in New York that they're trying to hang on to as they're on the road. Yeah, you had
2: to wait. You had to get to the next album for that one. Right. (laughs) But yeah, I think it's. It. I think the 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 main thing, and and I I totally hear what you're saying, John, about like the uh, the abundance of on the road songs out there. But I think part of it too is that, um, especially during this era when bands were contractually obligated to deliver an LP's worth of material every year, um, you know they. You know, when when you're a writer of any kind, they always just say write what you know, and if you're yeah, yeah your time on the on on the road um and ideally i mean you want your singer out getting in trouble because then uh their lyrics are going to be more interesting so you know
0: (laughs) right
1: no that's a good point yeah that's although very
0: quickly you go from being a band singing about stuff that everybody can relate to to being the band singing about stuff that teenage boys look up to and idolize but haven't actually experienced themselves
1: right and the preponderance of road songs is true because this is america i mean we travel all the time everybody you know driving back from grandma's house in the turn of heights you know turn the page sounds kind of you know fills the mood at the time you know what i mean or that kind of stuff i mean it's okay. it's an american genre of driving and going to places so yeah i can i can see why it's you know a popular uh type of thing to write about you
0: know. okay Moving on. Last song was this really the last song on the album? I sort of feel like I had a cassette that had a different track order, but "Strange Ways."
2: Um, actually, here let me let me interject for a second. Um, it is entirely possible that you did have a cassette with different running orders because, in order to save money, uh, sometimes uh, record companies would resequence albums um, so that they could use like a minute less tape. Ah. So if you had side one that was uh, two yeah, yeah. minutes and side two that was 18 minutes, if they re-sequenced a couple of songs so that each side was 20 minutes, you could save two minutes of cassette tape. And so um, if you bought, like, um, the version of Van Halen, the debut album that was on cassette, was different from the, the, the vinyl version. Okay. And uh, Who's Next was sequenced differently. Animals by Pink Floyd. There was... Um, can, yeah they, yeah I got that about animals. I remember that running into that too. I mean the, ca- the very, cassette yeah. version the cassette version of Leonard Skinner's debut album cut Freebird in half and faded it out halfway through. Ah yeah. That's on the A-track,
1: isn't that? Or is that on yeah. the next cassette? Oh, no, stack? this was a cassette.
2: Like, somebody really should have been taken out back for that one. Um, right, that's but, um, <laughs> at, any, at any rate, so yeah, it, it's like, so, so I, I said all that to uh, to say to you, Dave, yes, it is entirely possible that somebody sequenced the album differently because they were trying to save a minute of tape.
0: Gotcha. Huh. Okay. Okay, so, so Strange Ways, a song that I, speaking personally, have put on... Many a mixtape for a girlfriend over the years before I settled down. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. Okay. Well, um, so Maybe that's why it took you so long to settle down. Waka, waka, waka. All right. Okay. So it's one of my favorite. Actually, it's one of my favorite songs on the album. It is a great solo, and it's super evil. It sounds like Blue Oyster Cult uh, in a lot of ways. Or Sabbath. Uh or Sabbath. Yeah, yeah. But I, I like it a lot. It's definitely a very cool song, particularly with the way that Pete sings um, on it is nice. So it's definitely one of my favorites on the album. And it definitely fits with the whole sort of starting to get dark side of Kiss that is in Watching You and in parasites, uh, even in Going Blind. <clears throat> you know what I mean? It's, it's definitely a Kiss song but you may get, I don't know. You may disagree. It has sort to me, it also does have a lot of Sabbath and blowister cult floating around in it.
2: I don't know. This is, I mean, again, I, I agree with everyone else here. This is one of the best songs on the record. Um, it's also, it's, th- this one is it's strange to me that this one did not become a live staple. And I guess part of it was that maybe Peter wasn't comfortable singing it, or I, I don't know why this one didn't stick because it, um, It really is one of their best early songs. And, you know, it's a signature Ace Frehley composition. Um,
0: And Ace himself has actually played it quite a bit, especially in more recent years. Yeah.
2: And it
1: sounds like an Ace Frehley, something off an Ace Frehley solo album. That was something that
0: struck me when I
1: listened to it as well, is it sounded like it would have been something he would have put in recently into a
0: um, solo album. So it definitely has the stamp of Ace on it. They played it live a few times on the Hotter Than Hell tour. Um, Interesting fact, Peter put in a seven-minute drum solo in the middle of the song um, that he, I think he issued an ultimatum to the band that it had to be kept in or he was going to quit the band. And it was incredibly, from the band's perspective, long and dull and boring, and they cut it anyway. <laughs> so he left. All right. Well, wow. I could see that. Yeah. Um,
2: but it uh, well, it lends itself to a good a drum yeah, soul, it, I guess. Like to, to uh, a certain extent, I almost feel like if this had been an Ace fraley lead vocal, um this could have been his signature song along with "Shock Me."
0: Yeah, I'll go
2: with and, that. Uh, and so it just—I think to a certain extent, I think because Ace wasn't comfortable singing lead yet. Because of when this was written, I think that to an extent the, the band and ace you know missed an opportunity for this to become one of his you know um, his, his you know his one of his his signature songs and, um, you and know, uh,
0: m- maybe the greatest all- time ace fairly noise guitar solo where it's just f- yeah feedback and yeah yeah you know, just playing with his guitar and and not really musical but just 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 brilliant
2: yeah. Oh, it's good stuff. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's it's. Um, yeah, they're just. Um, this was a song that influenced a lot of players and a lot of people over time, and it's you know to an extent because of the fact that it's not on Alive and was never and has never been a regular in uh, Kiss sets either pre-reunion, post-reunion, or whatever. Um, I think it, it's it's one of those songs that really flies under the radar um and unless somebody is a really really big kiss fan or a really big music fan slash guitar player who at least appreciates what ace does but i think this is um it is certainly a a fantastic way to finish the record and um does a nice job of just um encapsulating what's good about hotter than hell in three and a half minutes
0: yeah yeah, yeah. All right, I'll take
2: that. Yeah, that works.
0: Now, Andrew, I know you want to go back and kind of do a quick lyric pass, but uh, before we do that, you and I were talking yesterday. You made some interesting points about how the music on this album re- relates overall to the packaging and all that as well.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think that that um, in I mean, w- an- another thing that the CD age reduced and the digital age has all but eliminated is the. Um, The factor of album cover art and one of the great things about lps is is that all of a sudden you had um an album cover you had 144 square inches to present something on the front and on the back um and um classic you know what's you know the genre now referred to as classic rock in particular really 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 got into this and i think that that um you know kiss went with the, the japanese motif um And kind of went with like slightly blurrier photos. Um, You know, they had the photos on the back, which was the the very Bacchanalian party, which was actually not staged. That was people actually just getting completely trashed. And but overall, I think I feel like the vibe is very like you know serious and darker, and it suggests rather than declares. I think a lot of the time you're 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 spending you you if you're you know. At at the time, you'd sit there and like you know look at the album cover, read the, the liner notes as you were listening. It was a very interactive thing, and I think that this was an album that, um, an album cover art that um, made you ask questions and wonder. Uh, it was more suggestions than declarations, I think. Okay. Um, First, so- yeah, it, it, <clears throat> sorry. Go ahead.
1: I, was- I would say that it definitely shows. It creates the mystery and the you know the stuff around the band stuff that doesn't really exist anymore in terms of our you know age of social media and all that kind of stuff but yeah, you know, and yeah. You
2: have, I mean you you have the band you, you have the band members names on the front of the album which is unusual for a rock record but then they're in you know next to their the, the Japanese uh, uh, the, the Japanese versions of their names you have you know two fingernails holding the record that are green you know you have um, and then uh, on the on the back you've got um, these just weird, blurred retouched photographs um you have you know uh, i'm I'm looking at the back now you have gene breathing fire you have you know ace in his silver robe you have peter with a topless woman and paul uh making out with somebody and you know this is very clearly a band that whatever you were doing at your house didn't quite match up to what these guys were doing at night at their house (laughs) right right exactly uh, and so i think really um because there is this darker, murkier vibe to the whole record, and then you have, you know, like, what does what does all this Japanese stuff mean? Or, you know, what, what's the significance of that? You know, you have, um, and then you have the, these pictures on the back that, like, if any of us had gotten caught doing any of these things at home, we'd have all been grounded, you know? And, <laughs> right, and, so, yeah. um, and so I think in that way, I really feel like the the album... Um, and it's also the, uh, you know, the front cover photo is black and white with um, which also, you know, kind of adds the, the band photo is actually black and white. And then you have kind of like the, the red on the outline uh, on the border. But I think that overall it just does a very good job of saying, OK, this is something very, very different. And what turned out to be on the actual album also turned out to be something very different and very unique, even within the canon of Kiss albums.
0: Yeah. Um, first appearance of the Chikara sign, right, with Japanese sign that means power, that they would Correct. play upon much later in Crazy Nights and Eric Carr's drum kit and whatnot. Um, also, Ace Frehley's makeup is, he's not actually wearing it, and either photo is airbrushed on. Um, I forget the explanation for that. I think he, oh, he, he was, in, he a was in a car accident. Ac- Yeah.
2: He was in a car accident, and he had uh, like um, he'd either broken or, or fractured uh, so part of his, 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 face. And so they could only make up half of his face. Right. And so th- there are, there are photos from the, uh, the back cover shoot where you can see his like the, the left side of his face is made up and the right side is blank. And so they had to have him turn his head for a couple of them and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, it was part of it. He was recovering from, uh, uh an auto accident and that was why they couldn't, uh, they couldn't go through it. They, they couldn't make up his whole face at the time. Okay. So it was even wrecking cars back then, huh? Okay. Oh yeah, he was good at that early on. <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay. Early, well, in G. you know. Um, but you got it a
1: talent. So,
0: so, yeah. so this album comes out. It doesn't do as well as even the first album, uh, initially at least. And part of that is not really their fault, um, because it was right around this time. I was I was doing some research. They lost Casablanca's distribution deal by Warner, right? Um, That story that I told last week, basically, uh, there was an internal memo by the president of Warner Records saying, we hate this band, we don't want them to sell, we're going to bury their releases. Somebody leaked that memo to Neil Bogart at Casablanca Records, and he went there and said, you guys have to let KISS out of the contract, or we're going to sue you because you're purposely trying to sabotage their career. So in the short term, they lost a lot of distribution, which probably didn't help the album uh, sales because you can't buy it if it's not in the stores.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, no, that's terrible. I'm surprised they became as big as they did when you, I mean, these first two albums are completely failing. I mean, that'd be a death sentence for any band now, you know, if you're not getting anything. You know, at least someone on the pop level.
2: Sorry, go ahead, yeah. Well, but by, by this point they were they were drawing as a live act, um, and they were you know at the, by by the time this this album was out, they were already having problems of upstaging headliners, and so what and and at the time the, the music business model was that you toured at a loss to sell records. Whereas now, you know, you know, 45 years later, it's completely flipped on its head where you make yeah. records at a loss to promote your tours. And that's where you make your money. And so that's the thing is that, that, you know, ticket prices were cheaper back then. And so the band was out there touring to try to get people to buy records, but what was working against them is that you have, you know, this, the, you know, we enjoy this record because of the darkness or the murkiness, but try getting these songs played on AM radio. right. Um, or, or even yeah, at that point. And so that's, what's working against them. And that's why when you go back and you think about, okay, why would they have all the way leading off side to It's because they wanted to try to get on the radio. They needed to, to they needed traction and, you know, it, they didn't get it for one more album. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of finding that song that would, that went made it onto the radio. But um, part of it was that, and, and I think that's part of why the band was so frustrated because they knew that they had a, a record that, that was, a good Kiss record, but was it a good Kiss record that was going to break them open to everybody? And I think, to a certain extent, I think they knew that. Judging by the you know the the overall you know how the album sounded sonically, I think they knew that they were fighting an uphill battle from the time that the record came out. And so um, it was um, you know the, blue, the, the first three Blue Oyster Cult records have the same exact problem where there were these, like they they're records that have just great song after great song. But they don't. When you when you stack them up on the radio next to stuff like you know we're an American band by by Grand Funk, where Todd Rundgren's doing this wonderful full lush production, then you you know have this coming after it. It's not going to necessarily stack up sonically.
0: Well, also yeah, no. the, the thing is, record companies were a lot more patient back then, right? I mean, if you listen to the first two Alice Cooper records, they're barely listenable, and he doesn't really become the Alice Cooper that everybody knows and loves. Until the third album, right? So, you know, nowadays, yes, if the first album doesn't hit, if the first single doesn't hit, you know, your career's (laughs) over. But I, you know, there was a lot more nurturing going on of baby bands and they were given a lot more chances at bat back then than they are today. Yeah, that's, I'm listening to, um, I'm listening to first and second Judas Priest
1: albums to sort of go up against these Kiss albums. And yeah, if you listen to the first two, um, Judas Priest records, again, they're, they're really, you know, they're not very well produced. In fact, I would argue they're even murkier than these first two kiss albums. Um, and you don't see any hits coming out of those, you know what I mean? So, well,
2: I mean, sad wings. Okay. Like, Judas Priest detour for a second. Um, yeah. Rocker Rolla was them just kind of figuring out who they were, but, um, the second Judas Priest album, sad wings of destiny is song songwright- from a songwriting standpoint. That is a classic. Uh, there are so many good songs on that, and you know, Vic- "Victim of Changes" is yes. their, their, arguably their signature song. But yeah, though you know, they didn't actually get a major label recording budget until the next record, until "Sin After Sin," um, and so, and, and you can hear that, and it's, um, and that's why a number of, um, you know, some of the so- the tunes on "Sad Wings" didn't really get presented in the way that they were intended to be until uh, "Unleashed in the East." Okay. So, Until their live album,
1: right? Isn't
2: that what that, yeah. that's what?
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, th- isn't that interesting that back in the day was the live album that broke the band? Because uh, a live one is the first time I really heard anything. And then, yeah, at least the East for
2: Judas Priest. Yeah, well, I mean, the, a live one also has the um, the added effect of basically serving as what amounts to the greatest hits records for the first three records. Right, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and you know it's it's uh, and you know you can argue about a couple songs here and there, but by and large, um, you know what are the best songs from the first three Kiss records? Well, just p- pick up Alive, and you've got them. You know, with a handful, yeah. hand- mm-hmm. with a couple of exceptions, but um, but yeah, I think, um, but yeah, I wanted to circle back and just kind of like and and uh, wanted to just take a quick walk through some of the lyrics on this. Yeah. Um, Let's do now. That. Keep in mind, I'm doing this. I'm doing this a little bit tongue-in-cheek here because keep in mind that again these were this was a time when when bands were expected to come up with a lot of material very quickly and so really digging into like you know like i'm i'm not trying to <clears throat> dive in and do like a dylan you know bob dylan-esque you know when i was when I, when I was reading through the lyrics um i did see some kind of like rather like like some, some definite overall themes. And so I wanted to start with, um, okay. Um, Paul Stanley seems to have some, um, he, he, he seems to uh, have some, some very complicated relationships with women. And sometimes maybe his judgment was a little impaired here because you've got, got to choose where, you know, he's, he's seeing somebody who seems to be dating someone else. And he's conflicted about that because he says, don't care. No, I don't, but you can't be his and still be mine. So he kind of does care. Um, so, I mean, I'm, again, I'm, I'm laughing. I think this, you know, because part of it is you need lyrics that fit the song and sometimes, you know, you don't want to dig in too deeply. But oh, we can dig in Yeah. Um, but here he's basically... <laughs> get, get your, your minor hats on, people. We're he's, going down. <laughs> he's involved, you know, he's involved with somebody who's seeing someone else. Then you jump to Hotter Than Hell and he hits on a married woman. Oops. Right. Um, and then you jump over to Coming Home, which is actually a really, really nice sentimental song. And that one i think actually really really nails it um then over on the gene side you've got going blind which is like completely ridiculous you have 93 and 16 you have all the way which is like the domestic uh arguments song um Mm -hmm. watching you is sort of like the demon and so i think you know he's still kind of developing but i think you know going blind predates kiss um all the way i think was more just like um written from a, almost from a business standpoint and i think watching you is all of a sudden really where you started to see the gene simmons demon that everyone came to know and love um and then you've got it's weird because i, I mainline I, I always thought of it as a peter song because and but it's it's sort of i mean it's i don't know it's it, it i guess it does jibe with the other paul stanley songs where you know again he's Um, chasing after a woman who seems to be sexually reticent. Um, So, um, but what can you do? Um, But then I think, and and then like the wild card here, you've got Parasite. Um, Parasite, Strange Ways are, you know, Ace's song, and it looks like his relationships with women seem to be a little more complex. Um,
1: Right, or troubled or perverted or whatever you want to, you know, put it. Yeah, I mean, I think Ace's songs are
2: definitely a little more on the, the free yeah. side. Well, I mean, Parasite he's running from and. Um, mm-hmm. um, Strange ways he's
0: trying to run, trying, too. trying
2: to woo. Yes. Uh, so,
0: yeah. But I
2: did think that, that it was um, th- those were kind of like the uh, I did think from, from that standpoint, there was just uh, kind of these guys already had very complex relationships with women at this point, as young as they were.
0: Right. Well, I think, yeah, Paul song, I mean, definitely um, got to choose. There's a sort of false sense of bravado, right? Like he's trying to be nonchalant about the fact that his girlfriend is cheating on him. And he's trying to say it doesn't matter. But, you know, you need to make a decision. But there's 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 pain. There's a subtext of pain there that it does matter. And, you know, maybe he's going to tolerate the situation if she chooses him but, you know, the fact that she's already seeing somebody else does not bode well for the future of this relationship.
2: No, it does not. <laughs> huh, yeah, all right. Well,
1: again, I, I hearken back to the fact that he's made. he says that he based it off of a, 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 another song. You know what I mean? That it's not necessarily written from his own
0: uh, point of view. You know what I mean? But I see what you're saying. So, yeah, you know, I think Ace is definitely writing from a much cooler um, street-level perspective when it comes to, to women, right? I mean, his wooing song is kind of full of voodoo and swagger and, uh, you know, his his song about, you know, Parasite is almost like, a, almost has a science fiction-like aspect about it too, right? I mean, like, you know, woman as alien feeding off of you, vampire sucking you dry that you need to get rid of to survive.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. woman as succubus. I mean, that's what it's comes off to as me, but yeah. Um, you yeah, see, definitely Andrew, definitely you different.
0: thought we weren't going to go there, didn't you?
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's. I mean, Parasite is that sort of, you know, be, you know, pagina dentata, women are scary. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's. yeah, I mean, it totally is a, is, is a standard archetype in, in songwriting. He just takes it to that sort of like, you know, science fiction, nineteen seventies. You know, pod people kind of idea.
0: Right, so. right. I mean, both of both of them are sort of equating sex and fear. Right, right. Um, you know, her strange ways. Um, I think I like it, but I'm not really sure. Don't want to fight it. You know, this this witchy voodoo woman that's cast her spell on me. You know, is you know maybe the devil incarnate, but I, I think I'm going to go there anyhow. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's a, I think that's pretty
1: much a standard trope, even in the 70s. The idea is like women having mystical powers and things like I mean, it's a, it's a trope like now. You know? Well, it's I mean, the it's having... the
0: perpetual anxiety of the male uh, evolutionarily at a disadvantage. Right. I mean, right. Yeah, exactly. He yeah. wants to copulate and reproduce. And, <laughs> you know, he basically has limited ability to make that that happen you know he's he's got his right. feathers and he can woo and you know <laughs> right but at the same time it, yeah, it, exactly. it never gets beyond him making a case uh-huh so instead he winds up being
2: frightened about it so yeah exactly yes well hey lots of great songs got written about that very problem so
0: yep absolutely <laughs> cool
2: so any um, other uh,
0: lyric stuff you wanted to touch on no, I
2: think that was just the overall major themes. Again, this is one where um, you know, because these guys were knocking this out under pressure, and because a lot of times they were writing songs that just needed a lyric that fit. Um, I'm not. Th- this is not necessarily something where you want to, you know, hold every line up to um, you know Talmudic level of argument. Um, but it's uh, um, it's you know it's it works. Uh, like most most of the lyrics work for what's happening, and you know this is overall again like I'll finish up kind of how I started which is that hotter than hell is in my top 5 kiss albums it's my favorite of the early studio records and I think it's um it's outliers fit within the context of what they were doing and the best songs remain some of the best songs in the catalog
1: yeah and for an album that is their so- that should be their sophomore slump it's it's not a slump at all it actually comes out and sounds pretty good there's lots of great songs on it that, and then those great songs eventually became part of sort of the Kiss canon. So I actually think it's it's a lot better than I expected it to be because I expected it to, you know, again, to be sort of a sophomore slump, not very good. You spent 15 to 20 years writing all the songs that you put on your first album, and then you put, you know, you have four months to write the next one. Um, usually the second album is not as good. So, but right. this one
0: stands <laughs> up. And I so. would argue that because they didn't have time to overthink it, because they were... On this insane schedule of touring recording touring recording in some ways it's probably a more honest record than if they had taken a year or two to finesse every little detail um they were clearly evolving as a band they were working together better and at this point at least they were all uh becoming better musicians as as they were touring together so andrew i know you've got to go to a concert but thank you so much for joining us i hope you can join us again um, yes
2: thank you for having me this was a lot of fun awesome yeah no nice meeting you again andrew good to, good to talk to you yes all right yeah.
0: cool man we will all be right, back
2: well, uh, until, until the next time uh kiss loves you rock and roll
0: all right <laughs> sir take care we'll be back sure. next week uh analyzing the third kiss album dressed to kill